Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. This is a podcast connecting with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Deidre McCullough is a singer, songwriter, guitarist. This mother, lesbian, feminist, has been performing for close to 50 years and been in the forefront of the growing number of black musicians reconfiguring perceptions of how black folk do folk. McCullough came of age in the fiery blaze of New York City's folk heyday. Her first album was released when she was 19 and a student at Vassar College. She is a much beloved performer in both folk and women's music circles. With five independent albums to her credit, McCullough has touched audiences from Maine to Maui. Her most recent release, Endless Grace, was one of the top 10 folk albums of 2022 in Rhythms Magazine, and her song, Shoulder to the Wheel, was winner of the 19th Annual International Acoustic Music Award for Best Folk Americana Roots Song. Deidre, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Well, I am so excited today to welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown, Deidre McCall. Deidre Hi there, Michelle. Hey, girl. Uh, You know, I mean... I love your voice. I love your music. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, last time when I went to see you, I love all kinds of music. You know, like people will say, like, well, who are you listening to? And it can be anywhere from Rihanna to John Pride. You know, I mean, because I just love music. Right. I mean, right. That's awesome. But what I like, though, is I'm one of those people, I look up to lyrics you know, to see what it says, because often, you know, someone can have a great voice, but what they're saying doesn't touch me. Your lyrics touch me. It's like you're my sister from another folk mother. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know you were um, from New York. Now you're in Atlanta. Often when I have people who go like, and it's, and it's, and, and there's no coincidence with that. So people go like, you want to listen to folk music. Black people don't do folk music. I remember growing up hearing black people who did folk music. And I think mm-hmm. it's really coincidental that here we're talking about black music, folk music, it was the week right after Harry Belafonte died. And I can uh, remember seeing him on, I don't know what shows it was as a kid, seeing him 
him sing, and then having had the honor once to have met him at an ACLU dinner, and he was oh really? Wow. I know he was. He was. He must have been like he had to have been in his eighties, and it was funny. Like the photographer who was taking pictures, everybody was taking him forever, and he was having problems with his um, camera. And Mr. Belafonte said, "Man, if you don't hurry up and take that picture, I'm going to have to marry this woman because somebody's going to start to talk." And I just fell out, you know, that, that feel like, I feel like I'm going like Harry Belafonte, you know, somebody who I had seen as a kid. And he was so playful and fun and nice. Right. And I, that's a picture I will treasure forever. Who influenced you as not just um, in general as folk artists, but also black folk artists? You know, my trajectory um, to music, to folk music, and to performance um, really is atypical for, I think, a black girl growing up in the U.S. Um, My earliest memories of music um, in the 60s was, of course, uh, Motown and the music that was, you know, playing throughout my house. I have one brother who is seven years older than me. Um, and during that time period, Motown was the pop music of the 60s, frankly. And mm-hmm. so that's where I, I think my strong rhythmic base came from. But that being said, the part where it gets to be atypical is that from seventh grade on, my mom and dad made a, a commitment to my education and that you know we were living in Queens, New York, one of the one of the boroughs, and they really did not want me continuing in the public school education system in New York City. So at great sacrifice, they conspired with with my cooperation. So it's not like I was shipped off, but I wound up going to a boarding school about wow. 30, 40 miles up from New York in the the town of Osming. New York, um, so a Catholic, a small Catholic boarding school. And that's where I was 7th through 12th grade. And that's where um, I discovered the folk music of the 60s, the folk scare, as, as Dave Van Ronk has called it. And Joan Baez and progressive FM rock is what I was starting to listen to. And Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Simon & Garfunkel, Joni Mitchell. And that folk influence kind of melded with my already strong um, R&B Motown background. That's why I think um, as a performer in the current singer-songwriter genre, I have a stronger rhythmic influence. You know, it's it's just not easygoing, finger-picking um, that, that's happening, um, especially on my albums where the producers bring out the rhythmic presence that's really inherent um, in all of what I do. So, yes, I was aware of, of of course, people like Harry Belafonte, although he did folk songs. I tend to still have always um, put him more in the pop category where he was extremely successful. Um, But I was aware of Odetta. Um, I was aware of some of the blues players at the time. My awareness of, of 
the black blues players really didn't happen until more into adulthood. But that's not how I came to the music. I came to the music through, um, you know, Joan Baez and Dylan and and Joni Mitchell and such. And, and actually even Joan Baez, it wasn't so much musically that I, I came to her, but I remember I think it was in eighth or ninth grade, the Vietnam War was still going on, and my school did a debate, pro and con, you know, with the upperclassmen between, you know, for the war or against the war. And I remember talking with some people afterwards who kind of disparagingly referred to Joan Baez, and I had no idea who she was. And I said, who's Joan Baez? And, and basically the action, the answer was, well, she's some commie wacko that's mm. against the war. Well, I was a big fan of the Joey Bishop show. And that weekend when I went home uh, to my, my, my family, um, Joe Baez was on. Oh, no, it wasn't Joey Bishop. It might have been Joey Bishop or it might have been Dick Cabot. At any rate, I love both of those late night shows. And Joan Baez was on. And instead of seeing her as a pinko commie wacko, a lot of what she was saying made real sense to me. And that's when I looked into her music and that really, oh, she's a folk musician and um, that was the entree. So it was actually more politically than musically that I was even introduced to, to Joan Baez. You know, it's funny because, of course, you know, being from, born and raised in Detroit, you know, Motown was like all there. You know, Motown was yes. all Oh, of course. You know, and I'm, and mine was just the opposite. I had been in Catholic school, and I had a a nun who introduced me to musicals and, and all of this other stuff. And then uh-huh. when I got to high school, I had a nun who told my parents, you know, I need a broader horizon. So I went to, to CAS, which had a, a broader thing. But it was funny when you said Crosby, Stills, National, and you know, I said going, do, 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 do. But there is something about that, and I, I can remember Joan, Joan Baez, and I also remember um, when I was interested in that people kind of like that uh, hippie, commie stuff, you know, but it wasn't. There was mm-hmm. something about the issue. It questioned things, you know. Yes. It makes it makes you think in question, but I like how you were able to, like you said, like that the the sense of rhythm, you know, because it isn't like we're not, you know, Soy and Michael Rowe to Boda Shaw, you know, you've got a little, you've got a kick to your horse, you know? right? Yeah, there's there's always either very prominently or hinted at there's a backbeat to everything that 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 I'm singing that is always there. Mhm, mhm, yeah, so. When you were here, you mentioned that, um, and, and it was right after the 50th anniversary of Olivia Cruz's, that you had been engaged with Olivia from music. And I did not know that history. Could you share that? You weren't aware that Olivia was a record company before it was a travel company? No. It, it, if you weren't, you're, you're not the first because it, it's just um, – funny to me that, that I don't know if this was a story I, I, I told at Trinity House, but more than once I've been, you know, at the record ta- at the C D table, at the merchandise table, and some younger women will come up and pick up an older C D that still um has the Olivia logo on it and they'll go look they'll go, Oh my gosh, look at this. 
Olivia is doing records now because they own. <laughs> they only know Olivia as a travel company. Um, so you know, like I, I am surprised to to that still when I run into people. Yes, Olivia Records began in 1973 as a record company. It was a group of women, a collective in Washington D.C. that wanted basically to change the world and to find a project to uh, make a better world for women. So change the world for women, specifically also to change the world um, for lesbian presence and safety in the world. And they were kind of bouncing around a number of ideas. One of the members of the collective was a musician by the name of Meg Christian who played around uh, at clubs and such in in the D.C. area. And Meg was singing the songs of a of a woman she had discovered through record stores um, by name of Chris Williamson. And Chris did a show in town and got hooked up with Meg and trying to make a long story short, uh, wound up having dinner with the collective one night because they were so thrilled that, that this woman whose music Meg had been singing for quite a while uh, was in town and they invited her to dinner. And at the, I think at the end of the dinner or at some point as, as Chris was leaving, they had been talking about, you know, we're looking for a project to do. And Chris, in an offhand kind of way, said, you know, you should start a record company. And then she left town. But she planned to, <laughs> you know, throw out a big idea and then get out of Dodge before they actually ask you to do it. Um, and... That was a seed that was planted. Long story short, they decided, yeah, let's start a women's record company. Um, They began it in D.C. Meg, a member of the collective, um, was their first um, project. Eventually, and I think probably in not much more than a year, they realized that they were going to be in the record industry. They needed to be in a more center of the record industry, so they moved to L.A., um, and then and contacted Chris Williamson, the one who had planted the seed in the first place, and wound up doing kind of the landmark milestone album in women's music history, Chris Williamson, The Changer and the Changed, um, which at the time was probably was bought was the best selling independent album and truly independent album, meaning the record company was not hooked up to a major corporation. They were only hooked up to other women um, and sold the record around the country. But um, I think Changer wound up selling over 100,000 copies, which is monumental. And and it sold much more than that. I'm talking about within the first two years, it sold 100,000 copies. And there's just, just a rich history, you know, for your listeners who are interested in what Olivia Records did. Holly Near, who was not on Olivia, Holly had her own label, has done um, an amazing website on the Oakland, California history of women's music because eventually Olivia did move up to the San Francisco Bay Area, um, mainly because that's where Linda Tillery was, and they really wanted to keep working with Linda Tillery. Linda was in the Bay Area. They were like, okay, we'll move. Um, and kind of like a, a yeah, a kind of like a whole um, I don't know conclave or or whatever 
for women's music developed in Oakland, and Holly has done a website. The website is called becauseofasong.org, and it's just an amazing repository. Holly did about 20 interviews with women from that time, uh, Linda, Mary Watkins, um, gosh, I I can't even remember. There's so many on the website. I've only gotten probably... um, maybe halfway through it, if I'm lucky, listening to the interviews. It is such a treasure trove of finding out the amazing things that happened during that time. But, yes, Olivia flourished as a record company. Um, Their first travel thing, I believe, was in 1989 when Judy got the idea of, you know, basically a festival on the water. So Michigan uh, Women's Music Fest, but with much nicer accommodations. And, um, it, you know, people thought she was, many people thought she was crazy, but the first uh, first cruise sold out so quickly. It was a small boat. You had to small, start small because you were putting a lot of money at risk. Um, so I think there were 600 passengers, but it sold out so quickly that they added a second cruise. These were four-day cruises at this point, but they did two back-to-back cruises and quite frankly within the next few years Olivia discovered that the travel industry was doing them much better service financially than the records because this was also a time when the record industry was starting to change from albums to CDs and then CDs to digital and sales really weren't happening so it was a really a fortuitous move on their point because um, the record industry really changed. Now, I don't know at at what point they stopped completely doing music. I know that uh, around 1999, maybe even 2000, I realized that the ship had sailed, literally, in terms of it being a record company. And my relationship with Olivia is that they didn't actually pay totally for my albums, I raised the money from fans. I've been doing uh, crowdfunding since we had a word for it, since 1983. And I would always raise the money for my albums, and then Olivia would lease them from me to put out on the Olivia label. And the beauty of that arrangement is that um, when we both got tired of each other, um, I could pick up my toys and go home. And it's not that I quite got tired. I just saw the writing on the wall that it really wasn't going to be actively pursuing the record business, and I said, you know, you know, Judy, I think it's time for me to, to take my toys and go home, and I'll just do this myself. Um, and they've gone on to, to great success. You know, I, I have to admit that originally, since I'm never a person that ever wanted to do a cruise, I kind of thought it was a very um, bougie <laughs> thing for them to be doing and politically incorrect, but, you know, I in those early years where the artists basically were required to go on the cruises, especially with the later cruises and, and talking with people, I met women on those cruises who had never held their lover's hand in sunlight uh-huh. because they led such a closeted life. And it was so revelatory for them to be on these cruises and to see lesbians being out and being themselves and feeling comfortable on these cruises because Livia charters the entire ship. 
is mm-hmm. it's only our passengers. It's the regular crew of the ship, and you know the cruise lines are vetted to make sure that that they are going to be welcoming to um, our community in, in many ways. And those women, in the same way that you hadn't heard that Olivia used to be a record company, some of those women had never heard of women's music. They were just there because it was a, a lesbian cruise. They had never heard of the Michigan Women's Music Festival. So it was mind-blowing for them to be on these cruises. And I realized that change happens at all different levels. And there are women who just have no interest in camp and camping out in the woods and being in the mud. Um, <laughs> but you put those same women on a cruise ship and talk the same politics and and give the same care to the community, and their life changes. So Olivia is just continuing to do the work that they started out to do, which is to change the world and to change the world for lesbians. Um, but they're doing it on the high seas. They're doing it right now. The 50th anniversary just uh, started down in Cabo at the uh, Hard Rock Cafe. They're doing it in a, in a variety of ways. Um, to reach women, to reach lesbians, and and to help change the world. You know, it's funny because, I mean, it just cracks me up because I was talking with Kathy Rinna, who's with the task force, and we were talking about things and about a lot of our history. And um, a lot of what I've done has been, like, political. And, I mean, I've heard uh, people, young lesbians who, you know, knock on wood. I mean, you know, y'all can get married, you can have your destination marriage, you know, and then you get divorced, you know. And that's why I don't I don't spend that money. But you know, there are things that aren't there. I knew about women's music. Yes. I went to the Michigan Women's Music Festival. <laughs> <laughs> and actually I was on the board of the Detroit Women's Coffee House. And so I yes, knew a about, great coffee house. I remember that. Yeah, you know, and and I was, it was like I knew about the hustle part. I mean, I can recall going to the women's music festival, hearing great music, being under the stars, hearing great music, and they would have the tables and they'd have all those. So I often felt, and that's part of what drew me to being on the, a part of a coffee house at first, because it was a safe space. But it was like to me. Mm-hmm. Here are these women, and, and we're constantly on the hustle. You know, everybody always, they always had, like, the, the the suitcase full of CDs, and we were signing them, we were buying them, we were trying to support them. They were doing, like you do, that crowdfunding. And, right. But, like, there are some of these young lesbians who don't know the beauty and the freedom of running naked in the woods in Michigan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> getting hit by bugs. Or going to a place like the the, the women's um, coffee house, they don't know that history. I didn't. I missed that part because during that phase of my my life and activism, I thought of Olivia Cruz's as bougie. You know, I mean, hell, right? But, <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, it was, it was something. I will say that I have gone on one only because um, I was I had gotten more politically active, and I was on the board of. HRC and also the National Black Justice Coalition, and I actually won on Olivia Cruz, and I went, and um, at that point in time, she had got off the board. My fellow board member, Karen Williams, was on that cruise. So, I mean, it was mm. like, okay, 
Well, it's not bougie, you know. I mean, right. but I, I hear what you're saying. That part about seeing people, and this is the first time in having that space where now, you know, I think we take for granted. And, and that history that's lost. Right. You know, I mean, I'm glad you told me. You know, I'm going to go look that up because, you know, I know Holly Nair. I know Holly Nair and her music. Yeah, you no, know. yeah, definitely, definitely check out. It, it's just an, an incredible resource. That, that And I think um, Susan Frazier from um, Goldenrod had a big hand in uh, help, uh, pulling the website together with um, Holly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this has been a journey for me, for you. From like finding out the garden collective, and you're still doing it. You're still crowdfunding. But doesn't that feel good? I mean, that you put it out there. This is what I'm doing. This is my music, and to have that support from not only old fans, but does it allow you to be introduced to new people? Well, I certainly feel um, graced by still being able to do this. Almost all of my fundraising um, appeals at some point have the same version of a sentence that the first one opened with, which is, I'd like to make an album, can you help? Mm. And it always humbles me that each and every time enough people have come through to make the albums happen. Um, For the last two projects, well, the last project in particular, uh, Endless Grace was all donation. In the early years, sometimes I did um, loans with people and had loans agreement, loan agreements. Some people wanted um, no interest loans. Some people had a, they were all low interest ro- loans. They were really uh, quite accommodating in the loan terms that I that I set up because I, fortunately I've, I've always had a good business mind. So when I did loans with people, I realized okay, I can't pay them back right away because it'll take me a while to tour enough to sell enough records to pay people back. So I I would set up that a year from, you know, the album's release date, then I would start start paying them back and I send people statements and and such. Um, And over time, because I've done this for five different projects now, uh, I kind of came to a place where I just, you know, needed the albums to happen as as much as they could happen without the loan aspect. And I, you know, chose that for this last album, um, I would not, you know, do any loans with with people. And I was just like, okay, this is kind of risky. But you know what? People came through for me. Um, the the emails and the, the uh, letters that I get from people are really... Well, uh, to use a word I've, I've used already in the conversation, humbling that my music is part of the soundtrack of their lives, uh-huh. and and it's important that it be there and that um, it has meaning for them. I I write songs as my way of figuring out the world around me. Uh, if something is kind of gnawing at my brain or my heart, that's how I often work out what's going on. And I am blessed in that my way 
of figuring out the world around me resonates in other people's lives. Um, I, I pretty much um, live, live by a quote I saw in a Joni Mitchell interview once that said, and she said, if you're listening to my music and are thinking about my life, uh, then I failed. Then I failed as a songwriter. Uh-huh. You know, the point. The point is is for you to apply it to how it fits in your life. That's one of the reasons I'm. You know, you you mentioned it at one point the videos that I've done, and I did finally with Endless Grace with the recent album um, give in to doing um, a couple of music videos at the insistence of my promotion people. But I'm actually not a really big fan of music videos because I feel it attaches to the song a visual image that short circuits me applying the song to my life, Mm -hmm. that it it assigns the visual image and a storyline sometimes that kind of conflicts with where I was taking the song. I I remember... um, seeing a video for Princes When Doves Fly. Um, and it turns out, you know, with lots of images of, of domestic abuse. And I'm like, well, that's not what was going on in my head. And I was really <laughs> disappointed <laughs> that it had this imagery now assigned to it. Um, because the point is for people to take it into their lives. Now, other, you know, you, you mentioned one of my videos that, you'd really took you to a good place. So I guess it is possible to, you know, have a music video but but not get licked in locked into um those visual images. Maybe people are more adept at that than I seem to be. Um but again, I, I write songs to figure out the world around me. I am so, so grateful that for um almost fifty years now those problem-solving songs have made a difference in other people's lives. You know, I, I, and that makes sense to me, although, you know, sometimes I, I think I, I saw the one, and, and there's an energy that I pick up, at, and it was like being in a concert, seeing it. But I also, and one of my many hats, is I do poetry. And um, I have been in Princeton at a, at a prize, and this one uh, woman, she said, well, you think there's any need for for things like poetry and music? Does it really have an impact? And I know what you're talking about. It's about the words, how you're trying to put the world in that. And mm-hmm. it's awesome. Mm-hmm. I've had people come and go like, and I, what I was thinking about wasn't what they were thinking about. But right. they grasped something from that. And I often tell, you know, particularly when, you know, people want people want to put down us poets. But... <laughs> I'll often tell them that, you know, if you look at any movement of social change, at the heart of it is the art. It's our, our musicians, our poets, and, uh, you know, and because we're putting words out there, it's not just for us for a moment, but you'll find that there are words and uh, that are almost like anthems that carry over through generations. Well, you know, definitely every social social change music uh, movement um, has its own soundtrack. Um, There's a museum here in uh, Atlanta called the uh, Center for Human, Civil and Human Rights. 
And a biggest part of their exhibit, of course, being in Atlanta, is dealing with civil rights in the South. And I was taken uh, by part of the exhibit that talks about how important um, music was and singing was to the the people, you know, sitting at lunch counters and being on on the front lines. And my favorite thing was in uh, a worksheet from one of the workshops that said, you know, that that you know we'll be singing songs and and you know please just you know join in. And it says, and some of you may think that you can't sing. If you think you can't sing, sing louder. Um, <laughs> that's, that's how important it is. And I think it's, um, I saw, uh, I was talking with John McCutcheon, and he was talking about the importance, you know, both to the union movement, the civil rights, um, to our, you know, lesbian community, music, whatever, that we can remember lines from key speeches, we can many of us can quote lines from Dr. Martin Luther King, um, or from Malcolm X, or we can quote a lot of lines from individual speeches. However, we can remember entire songs. Uh huh. Yeah. The music is important. Some people say, you know, are you trying to um, with with songs that are political, that are topically political? Are you trying to convert people? And I said, no. Um, if they're hearing the songs, that means they, they paid to come to the concert in the first place. But there's value in encouraging and in supporting um, those of us who, who have similar beliefs. And that's what that music does. And, you know, and sometimes a song can mean something at one point, but at another point, depending on who, they'll bring up a song and you go like, wow. And it, it just sort of takes you to a different place. And you do know right. the word. You know, and it does, I mean, it makes a totally different, a different meaning. It, it, it touches something. I've seen people do, um, what is it, Cindy Lauper's True Colors at, at a prime. Mm-hmm. And, but in a different, it's, they make it their own and they do it. And it's just like, right. it's different. You know, I mean, it, it hits you different, but it hits you hard. And like you said, you know, suddenly you're singing along because you know the words. It's it's right. part of your life. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so they they dragged you into the video world. Did you have fun? <laughs> um, I was pleased with with the results, and since it is video, it's not so much that I needed to have fun. Um, I needed to hire the right people to do uh-huh. it. Um, uh, Casey Crown, who did the video for the song Shoulder to the Wheel, uh, is an old friend of mine uh, from uh, my days of living in New York and had a video company. And, of course, I first approached uh, Irene Young. Um, long, gosh, you know, decades that Irene and I have, have been friends, and Irene did the video for uh, I Do Not Walk This Path Alone and came into the studio while we were recording and shot that and, and decided to make it that type of recording process video. But Irene's working on her own book, um, which is going to uh, publish her soon, um, of, women, of photographs of women and women's music and, and the women's community, not just women's music, actually. Um, so I knew she was really busy when it was time to, to, to plan another video. And... She said, why don't you call Casey? We haven't talked to her in years, but she has this video business in New York. So um, I reached out to Casey, who had never done a music video before, 
um, and she she and I worked together, and so that was big fun sending her the resources for that and just her bringing in her own creativity. And um, it was also a different kind of process. We did a lyric video for Nothing to Prove, which was done by my um, Karen Carrie Estrin, who worked my radio promotion, and she has a video partner uh, who's also a musician, um, a guy by the name of Judd Kegswell. And they really did um, an excellent job for for nothing to prove and, and went through a lot of changing. And that, that was probably the most interesting process to me because Judd would send me, um, you know, uh, examples of, of what he was doing in sections and versions and stuff. And I remember, you know, giving him comments like, okay, this is a good start, but I'm feeling there's too many uh, straight-haired, thin white women <laughs> in this video. Um, you know, so and I, I said, we need more variety in body sizes. And um, at one point, Judd had um, a couple, there was one couple in it, you know, because part of Nothing to Prove, uh, you know, it's talking about a difficult part in the relationship. But the only couple in, of his images, because he used still images, not um, moving video like Casey did, um, was of a heterosexual couple. And then he also had some shots of, of, of men also going, you know, thinking about difficult relationships. And I said, okay, you can't just have a heterosexual couple um, in the video and you just can't have one other man. And I was thinking um, that the solution would like, okay, so we're going to wind up with more different types of couples in the video and a couple of different more men. Uh, Judd took it. Got to give the bro boy credit. Um, he dropped the heterosexual couple. So now that there's of a couple picture, it's just the two women. And um, dropped the male aspect entirely. So really coming at it from um, a female-centric uh, perspective. And I was like, oh, that is so cool. Because usually when if you see a video that is going to be, quote-unquote, inclusive, then you're going to have um, heterosexual couples and same-sex couples. And you're going to have a variety of men and women, and that's inclusivity. And, you know, we don't have to have all of our work show that aspect. We can just come from the perspective um, of lesbians and of just women. And that balances out the other 99% of work that is heterosexual, that is one-sided. Like, we don't have to be balanced in that way. We're balancing out the fact that a lot of the other images that we get are purely heterosexual and heterocentric. And I just love it that Judd just like, okay, we'll just dump all this and make it just from the female perspective. So it was interesting going through that, that process with him and, and thinking about what images um, we were choosing but what would be coming off to most people as I was choosing to put out into the world. You know, I like that because, you know, one of the things you always talk about how representation matters. And it wasn't like you had to do like, you didn't open the beginning song like, we're here, we're queer. You know, you, know, <laughs> you, you did this song where the words could resonate with anyone, but the images right. 
it's putting something different in your mind. You know, if you think of right. a couple yeah. having strife, it's a couple having strife. And too often, because we're not represented enough in the media, just in general, you know, you don't think of same-sex couples. You don't think of two lesbian couples. You think of, you know, right. and what your perception of what a lesbian couple would look like is different. So, you know, right. that, that I think that that's one of the good things about media that, we can project a picture without that. That right. gives depth to the words. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting also in that when my radio person said, you know, you need some lyric videos, and I'm like, really, lyric videos? What just what use are they? I mean, I I have a use for them as a teacher because uh, a lot of times my students would ask for songs, and especially my minor students. Um, and I would find them online, so I'd know what the lyrics were to make sure it was something appropriate to teach. But that's all I used it for. Um, but I'm often cautioned um, by my circle that I can't just view the world from my own perspective. So uh-huh. I actually put it out on my Facebook page, who watches lyric videos and why? And I think I expected to get back a lot of negative um, feedback on just, you know, the uselessness of lyric videos, but I didn't. I got schooled that um, a lot of people find it really useful. There are a lot of of people with hearing impairments that um, the the lyric videos, having lyrics up there on the screen gives them clarity. And um, I, I learned a lot and realized that, yeah, I really need not approach everything from my perspective, and um, that's when I went forward with the lyric videos. Well, you know, I'm one of those. I, I like the lyric because I'm about lyrics, and if I hear something, mm-hmm. there might be one part that, that grabs me, but then I want to read the lyrics, and then there might be another part that grabs me, and you right. know, which is so kind of cool because, as I was thinking when you were talking about how you came up with the title for this your current album, Endless Grace, I think that I could see where I could see that process in my mind. Like, okay, let me read all these words, and then suddenly hitting that part, and it was like, oh yeah, these are the words that need to be pulled out. Right, and and it, and I do, you know, I it, that's not to say this. Like I said, lyric videos attach a, a visual, but lyrics are really important to me, which is why with the physical CD. You know, uh, I went to the expense of having, I think it's an eight-panel fold-out so that uh, the lyrics could be there. It's in mice type, um, but the lyrics were there. And also up on the on my website, on the album, on the page for Endless Grace, there is a downloadable PDF of the album lyrics and liner notes. Um, uh-huh. I, I, miss, I miss the days of the 12-inch LPs where, you know, you... Sit on your bed or sit on the floor and play the album and fondle the cover and go over the words. It's kind of like no fun unless you got a magnifying glass with a with a CD these days. But uh, I am with you that it, it really is important for people to be able to access the lyrics for sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so you are on the road a lot. Not only do you do you crowdfund for this, but I mean. Like I know, I think on the like you were three weekends in Michigan, but in between you went someplace else and you did that. I mean, <laughs> it's like you know, 
what kind of car do you have? <laughs> you know, really? What kind of mileage are you getting? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the, the nature of, of being a performing artist these days, at least on, on this level, uh, involves a lot of driving. Um, as I forget, it might have been Utah Phillips who says, you don't pay me to sing, you pay me to drive here. Um, um, and it's it's fortunate that I do like driving. You have to be careful with scheduling so that you don't tax yourself uh, too much. But um, when I can, I prefer to drive because driving gives you time to get there. When you have show after show after show and you're flying, you are jerked and drop kicked very quickly into different realities. And you don't have time to process what happened and get ready for what is about to happen. And driving gives you that time. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I got to see a great deal of this country. I call it the See America Inch by Inch program. Um, and, and in fact, for a, a number of years, my, my son, um, traveled with me. And so he got to see a lot of the country. He, during the first months of the pandemic, he was actually working as um, an over-the-road truck driver. Um, that is actually where the second verse of Shoulder to the Wheel came from, um, is my asking him, once he had stopped doing it, what it, did he miss anything about driving um, a truck, a semi around the country. But, you know, he's his mother's son because he called one of the places we never got to together was the Pacific Northwest. And so he was like calling me and sending me video. He goes, Mom, we never made it up here. It is so beautiful. Um, so he has an appreciation from for the entire country on a very hands-on level from um, being on tour with me. Mm-hmm. And you know what? What special, precious memories, you know that that gives you. You know what I mean? You know, yes. you took that time on the road. You know, he didn't see it as, you know, we didn't, we weren't in limos and doing that. He was time with his mother, seeing his mother do her craft. I think that one of the the bonds that Karen Williams and I have. We both also have sons, and we talk about you know that time, having that special time with your son, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. share and how it, how it builds things. Does he ever go like, okay, mom, uh, when are you going to get off the road? When are you going to stop doing this? Or does he, is he just the opposite? Mom, it's been a minute. When are you going to put out some music? Um, no, you know, he doesn't, in, for the most part, he doesn't pay too much attention to my career, especially once he reached adolescent. I homeschooled, I homeschooled him through eighth grade, and then wow. he wanted um, conventional school for high school. And I, I had told him all his growing up, you don't realize it, you have the cool mom. Um, <laughs> and he, <laughs> he didn't really appreciate that until um, his new friends in high school, and I don't know what at what point it was, but they found out that his mom had a Wikipedia page. They were like, Dude, your mom is a Wikipedia page. <laughs> and I suddenly, in his mind, finally became the cool mom. Um, but, you know, I, I would have to, I have to kind of almost bribe him to, to come to shows. It's not, 
um, his kind of music. But by that same token, um, in the last year, he's we've had a couple of conversations because I have been touring uh, so much. And when I'm home, always doing something around booking or something like this, doing an interview, and he said, you know, you work all the time. Uh-huh. And I said, you notice? And he goes, yeah, there's like rarely a time you're not working. And he kind of marvels at the um, the commitment I have to, to doing this. And, and he sees it. For a long time, I didn't think he did. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a different kind of schedule, uh, not getting up every day and seeing your parents go to work um, in a way that people with traditional jobs do. Um, but he, he, he noticed <laughs> that I am always working, you know. Um, so he appreciated, you know, musically, it's not his stuff, although we have our moments. Um, last year, uh, I um, asked him, Bonnie Raitt was coming to town, and when he was about uh, six or seven and we were driving around, no, probably younger than that, probably younger than that, but maybe like five or six, we were driving around, and he said I, he wanted to hear some music. And so I'm going to go, oh, okay, and I'm going through the cassettes in the car. Do you want to hear Raffi? I'm like, no. Do you want to hear Barney? Do you want to hear no? And I'm going through all the kids' music tapes, and he's real quiet in the back, and he goes, you know, I think I need some Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> all right. All right. You know, and I was right. like, right. Yes. So when Bonnie Raitt was coming to town, I texted him at work and said, you know, do you want to go? And he said yes, and he went with me. And he has said more than once, and in fact, even in the last couple of weeks, uh, it was one of the best shows that he's ever been to his life. Um, so he's not much into mom's music, but I did my job. <laughs> exactly. You know, when you said, he, you know, I said, hey, she's done her job, you know. Right, Bonnie Raitt. right. <laughs> I know, you know, I mean, you tell them I'm right there with them. You know, I think that whenever she's uh, available, I've gone to see Bonnie Raitt, and I had a friend, in fact, the same one I brought to see you, who was like, and it was interesting because it was like, okay, well, I'm game. Okay, what kind of music are you talking? And I'm saying, like, trust me, you'll like this. Trust me, you'll like this. And you know what? And she did. She went and listened, watched the videos and stuff. She said, I think I will like this. So then afterwards, we mentioned Bonnie Raitt, and, I, and she was like, well, I don't know about Bonnie Raitt. Said, You've never seen Bonnie Raitt? Put that on your to-do list. Also. So, um, Endless Grace. I mean, it's getting a lot of recognition, a lot of acclaim. Um, it is done extremely well, yes. Did you feel it in your gut? Did you go like, you know, I'm put this out here? You know, I, as my, my auntie would say, you put your foot in that. <laughs> did, you feel, <laughs> did you feel something good, you know, when, when you finally put the final amen on that one? Did you feel like, you know, this is special? You know, from, from working with um, Julie Wolf and Diane Davidson and Diane's uh, producing partner, Larry Cheney, I knew the tracks were sound, but I also knew that you can put out albums that you're really proud of and you feel hit the mark. But that doesn't mean it's going to resonate in a word that you need in a way that 
is as rewarding as one would like, shall we say. So it, it's, you know, even as the accolades for Endless Grace were coming in, there's a part of me that was going, but I've put out really good albums before. You know, have you not noticed? Um, so I think it was a combination of timing of, of coming out of the pandemic. Um, unlike any other album that I have done, I actually, in the budget, so for the money that I fundraised for, um, did put money into paying for radio promotion and um, and for PR. And it's not so much that, you know, you pay a radio person and that means you're going to get um, airplay. What you pay a radio promoter to do is someone who's uh, has the mailing list and has the the moxie and has the connections that at least when when they send it out it's at least going to be listened to and a number of, of djs that i've had relationships with um over the years that i've run into in the past year or so at conferences said yes it mattered that carrie um from carrie estrin um, management sent me the album and I listened to it, but from the time that I put it on, it's all about the album, and you knocked it out of the park. Yes. So the album, doing paying for radio promotion meant that it got listened to, and the album, Endless Race itself, was so remarkably done that it, it resonated and, and wound up getting a lot of um, airplay and touching people like yourself and, and touching audiences and continues to. So I... You know, like I said, I think I've done good albums before, but this was the right album at the right time with the right amount of promotional funding behind it. Mm-hmm. But like you said, your work is, is out there. Yeah, I remember you talking about – also, you know, you're a great storyteller. I mean, when you're talking about the <laughs> one from – this is on Spotify that you heard that, you know, but they were playing like one of your old songs. And so it's out still, there. Yes, yes, people still go. <laughs> and this one song, yes. You know, it, it's sort of cool. Like, you know, it's like you put it out there in the universe and people will, like, say, well, hey, let me see what else she's done and, and sort of do that and be and feel good about it, you know. Right. Um, as, as someone, when you're writing, do you ever have people, you know, like your son, exes, you know, I, you know, you know I've been there, you know, your son, exes going like, was that about me, you know, but when you're writing it, or maybe it wasn't specifically about about them, but they want to come and suddenly discuss that as if it, the song was about them? No, well, I think that it's, it's uh, I mean, there's a couple of songs. Uh, I, I talked about Halfway Down the Highway on Endless Grace that was uh, directly from a conversation, you know, with with my son that he has no memory of having. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, the song All Night Long, um, I actually, um, you know, gave him a cassette of it, so that's how long it's been around. Um, no, maybe it was on a CD, um, for his birthday. And not that I wrote it for his birthday, but by the time I finished, it was his birthday. And so I tend to, if I feel that um, people need to know that they're in the song, just um, I, I tend to let them know ahead of time, so it's it, it's not ever a surprise. Um, and I think the songs are are hopefully, if I if like I said, like if I've done it well, they may have a 
a seed in springing from my life, but hopefully I cast it in a way that it's specific in a very general kind of way, if that sort of makes sense, so that people can take it into their lives. But like any songwriter, yeah, you know, we kind of give people a heads up that, you know, anything we do is fair game for the next song. So (laughs) be careful. You know, you know how when someone will say a line and all of a sudden they, they, they say, stop looking at me. Why? You know, but that's, good. that's right. a good line. That's a good line, you know. Right. Excuse me while I write this in the notes of my iPhone, really. <laughs> yeah, really. You write it down and it's like, oh, that was a really good line. You know, that's, right. that's one of the things that I, I miss is, as you said, to lose your elders because, I mean, they had some really good lines that I've written mm-hmm. down, you know. And so how am I going to work this into something? So, and let's grace. It's there. You're working it. What's next? Well, I still have at least another year around uh, directly promoting Endless Grace. This year, uh, 2023, and I think I talked about this um, when I was at Trinity House, is also my 50th year as a performing songwriter. An album that I did with Roulette Records in 1973 uh, was released, and here we are 50 years later. So I've been wanting to do something uh, kind of commemorating my 50 years in the business, and if you notice just in the general media, a lot of people are (laughs) celebrating 50 years in the business. I think even Bonnie Raitt um, is celebrating 50 years. So we're, we're, we're at a milestone. And so I wanted to get up uh, some things on my website to commemorate that. But I just, as you know, I am touring all the time. And it's really hard to to pull that together. And, in fact, even before we started this conversation and once we finished, I'm doing some things to update the website. So, as my son says, I'm always working. But one of the ideas that Carrie, my radio promotion person, you know, said, well, why don't you do – a retrospective album, you know, your favorites type thing. And, you know, and I, that seems like a good idea. I have, you know, four other albums that I could pull together, you know, some of my favorites and use those tracks. And then I thought, okay, I could, you know, maybe track down that album on roulette because I wrote three of the songs on there. And if I could track down who owns it now, I could, you know, get the rights to do that. Anyway, I was throwing this idea out to Julie Wolf. Um, because those tracks from my Olivia work, independent work, and from Roulette all have a very different sonic sound to it. And I said, can we do something to um, to even things out so that things don't sound so dated and like they came from different time periods, which they did, but you want to lessen that. And Julie, genius that she is, and she says, yeah, we could do something like that. But you know what would be kind of interesting is that if you uh, chose your favorites and we just went in and did them guitar and vocal. And I went, wow, you just made this project infinitely more interesting to me (laughs) (laughs) than simply culling together old tracks and, and putting them out there. 
Um, because along with that, I still wanted to do, if I did that, I still wanted to do at least three new songs uh, to be on there. So um, that's kind of the project that's waiting in the wings, uh, tentatively called 50 Years and Counting. Um, wow. since it won't be exactly out in, in 2023 at all, maybe late 2024 if I get around to doing it. So that that's what I'm thinking of doing. And it makes it easier, actually, to pull in those songs that was on roulette records because I can just go in and re-record those songs. As long as I'm not using the actual tracks from the original album, I don't have to get their permission. So it, it makes it more feasible uh, to do. Um, so that's kind of a, a project, but um, in terms of wanting to have, uh, you know, some new songs on it, I need some time to be home and I'm not seeing that happen anytime soon. But I, I think people will find it more interesting because uh, a lot of people don't realize that except for my first album, Don't Doubt It, I actually don't play guitar on my albums. Um, because of the nightmare playing guitar on my album was on Don't Doubt It, um, uh -huh. I realized it was much better for the project overall if I didn't play. I'm not a studio player. I'm not perfect. I'm not that flexible. Um, and there are so many wonderful guitarists out there. Um, Nina Gerger, Gerber and Mike Marshall on this last project, uh, Gowan Matthews and, and Larry Chaney did the guitar work, and they do amazing guitar work that I then then take the tr – that's all based on what I do, except they expand the guitar arrangements. And then I go and learn their expanded arrangements. That being said – consistently through the years, people have said to me, you know, you don't need all those musicians on the album. Your show live is great. I just want to hear you and guitar. So that's what I'm finally going to give all those people that have asked for that. It's going to be um, just me and my guitar and singing. Yeah. Oh, that, 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 I, I can see that. You know, I'll be in the front row singing along. I'm going to Michelle, you know, this is not a duet, you know. This is not a duet. Just sit there and clap, clap when cues, you know. Um, you know, 50 years, wow. What would yeah, you say? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, I mean, first of all, I mean, I mean, I know I didn't think that I'd be still doing some of the things I'm doing 50 years later. But, I mean, what would you say to that young woman with her acoustic guitar saying, I'm going to make some music. What would you tell her that you've learned along this way? I'm not sure because what my mind goes to is, is uh, things that I wish I had done a little bit more differently, more differently. It sounds like it's probably grammatically wrong. Um, I do wish I hadn't been so much of a solo performer. Uh, that was really dictated more by the economics of I wanted to tour, I wanted to perform, and it's freaking expensive to put a band on the road. But I do wish that I had collaborated more with people and interacted more with other musicians. So perhaps I would tell her um, to collaborate more, to not be quite so... I don't know, insecure about your uh, guitar skills uh -huh. um, and and just jump in and do it. But 
I think I forget what it was for that that someone said, "What would you tell someone in the industry or who wanted to do what you do?" <laughs> I think the the first thing I said was, um, "If there's anything else in life that would give you pleasure doing, do that instead." <laughs> because <laughs> because this is really hard. And then the second thing I said was that, but if you find you must do this, then do it with passion and conviction and go all in because that's what I did. Yep. Yep. Yep, you did. Wow. Wow. This has been incredible. Um I know Atlanta is your home. I'm hoping to get down there. You know, I think that I have several favorite cities. Atlanta is one of them. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, have you ever gone someplace and people just to like took you in and it was just like, okay, you know, I, I'm mm-hmm. happy here. And I know um, I came down to to visit Atlanta and a friend of mine, um, Marianne, said, no, you're not staying in a hotel. You're staying with me and Angela. Mary is great, really. I know. Okay. The only the only downside was sitting in the back seat of her Mini Cooper. I thought they'd need to dial it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, but but it was just like, and everywhere we went, it was like, okay, we're here. Are all these people who were were very welcoming, and I think especially as a lesbian, I felt really really good down there. So um, I'm going to be watching to see if you're performing down there, so I can come and see you. Again in person. I'm hoping that you get up this way again. Well, who knows? I might just start fighting. You know, have guitar, have guitar. Will travel, and and the Midwest has has always been a really uh, rich, receptive area to me. So I I will be up. Um, I I don't have anything planned, but I'm I'm talking with a number of promoters um, in the area for some time in 2024, getting back up there. Oh, okay. Well, that's great. Well, I wanna. Thank you for taking the time today. I mean, you know, I hope that we'll continue to see people with that passion. And like you said, it's a, if you've got that passion and you're ready to put in the work, that's what we need. We need people to do that. It, it is, to me, it's world-changing because that passion goes out there. And like I said, it might hit me one way, hit somebody else that, but it, it creates change. And that's right. what's really important, you know. But I appreciate you. I thank well, you. thank you, Michelle. This this is has been uh, just a, what I like our interviews that kind of take me places and thoughts that um, I don't get to visit very often, and it's always helpful to do that. So thank you. Oh, okay. Um, I want to thank my guest, singer, songwriter, guitarist, Deidre McCullough. This dreadlocked African-American mother, lesbian, feminist, has been performing for close to 50 years and been on the forefront of a growing number of black musicians reconfiguring perceptions of how black folk do folk. You can support Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon.com. Current and past episodes of a show can be heard on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio. 
Stay tuned as we continue to introduce you to many more amazing individuals living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.